Welcome. I am Laura Anderson, president of Veterinary Career Services. VCS is a recruiting firm for veterinarians, veterinary specialists, and management professionals. We are passionate about helping people achieve their career goals and lead a rewarding life. VCS is hosting this podcast series, Veterinary Specialist Career Insights, to provide insight into the career paths of accomplished veterinarians and learn more about their challenges along the way. These doctors have shared their ups and downs in their careers, the most rewarding aspect of being a veterinary specialist, and they also provide advice for those just starting out. I am extremely grateful to them for speaking with me. Thank you for joining us. Welcome. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Sofia Serta Gonzalez, who is presently the neurology specialty leader of the neurology department at MedVet in Chicago. Dr. Serta Gonzalez went to veterinary school at Cornell University, then on to an internship at Animal Medical Center in New York, and then completed her residency at North Carolina State University. She is the author of numerous publications on topics such as cranial cervical junction abnormalities, neuromuscular disease, encephalitis, spinal tumors, among many other topics. Dr. Serta Gonzalez also has a strong interest in congenital abnormalities of the brain and spine and abnormalities of cerebrospinal fluid and blood flow within the nervous system. Thank you so much for speaking with me today and being so generous with your time. It's my pleasure, Laura. Thank you so much for having me. Sure. I'm excited. I, your career is fascinating and, and um, it's going to interest so many, uh, so many young, younger folks. Um, so I thought to jump right in. So you have been at MedVet for over a year and a half. And um, after being on staff at Cornell, how has the transition from academia to private practice been? Sure. Yeah, it's, it's been good, frankly. It's been nice. I have to admit, I um uh, initially, it was a little bit intimidating to change gears to such an extent, but it's been incredibly nice being able to be back, having close relationships, frankly, with owners and with patients and having my own patients that I see again and again and become, you know, become so close with, with them and their families. And uh, it's, it's nice to be able to have more boundaries between work and, um, and home life. To, you know, in the sense that there is more of a capacity to be done to a to a large extent to be done at the end of the day. You know, you still answer emails and things like that, but at the same time, it's less of a less of a constant um, demand as far as you know needing to write papers and grants and things like that. It can be more uh, doing those kind of things as I as I like. So I'm still lecturing and I'm still doing things like that, but it's more that I, I drive it. And that's nice, frankly. Yeah. So what has been the biggest adjustment? I would say, you know, initially when, when I was first starting here at Medved, I think probably all the paperwork is the main adjustment, I would say, I, uh-huh. I mean, you know, uh-huh. it's just, you know, before it was nice to not have to worry about a lot of that. <laughs> um, whereas now we do all of our own paperwork and that's, that I would say probably would be the one thing that if I could, if I could change in an ideal world, then that would be nice, but, but you get used to it. Right. Right. I'm sure you get a system. Yeah, exactly. Which helps you be more yes, efficient. Exactly. Exactly. It's just a matter of developing that system so that you can, 
Yeah, exactly. So that you can be more nimble with, with referral letters and things like that. Let me ask you this. When did you realize you wanted to be a veterinary neurologist? Um, in vet school. Yeah, in vet school. Uh, yeah. Throughout vet school, I was debating between cardio and neuro. And my last year of vet school, I decided to go the neuro route um, for, for many different reasons. But, but I was toying with it throughout, primarily throughout the entire vet school, and then decided upon it, yeah, truly the last year. Okay. What is your favorite procedure? That's tough. I like surgery a lot. Um, I would say probably my favorite would be the foramen magnum decompression, just because it's kind of my pet disease process. Not that it's mine, but more so than my favorite disease process. So it's nice to be able to address that, you know, those times that we get to address that surgically. Although we're doing that less and less now, thankfully, because we've good and bad, because we realize that a lot of these guys can do fantastically well without surgery if they're mild or moderate. But those chances, those cases that do require it, it's a lot of fun to do that surgery, frankly. I'd say that and placing shunts for hydrocephalic cases probably would be my favorites. Which surgeries do you do the most? Hemis. I think all neurologists probably would say the same thing. Hemilaminectomies and ventral slots. <laughs> Those are the most, the most common. You know, um, most of our Dogs come in as back dogs and things like that, I would say. But we do get, we, we are able to have craniotomies and these kind of others, these, you know, dorsal laminectomies and LS disease, uh, these kind of things that are nice to do as well. They kind of change the theme on you, which is nice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How many days a week are you in the, in the OR? It varies. You know, there are uh, ebbs and flows. There are t- days that it's every single day, and there are days there's w- random weeks, you know, when things slow down. Like, suppose after the holidays, most of us slow down, and then it'll, it may not be that we have a surgery. You know, it may be that it depends on what comes in to such a large extent. You know, if there are cases that come in that are more medically manageable, and they're not, and the and or the owners don't have the capacity to go to surgery. Then we might be doing more medical management of things than anything else. So it's it's so variable. What is the most complicated surgery you've ever performed? Well, there have been a couple of doozies, but um, probably the most <laughs> the most complicated I think was when I was a resident. Frankly, was when I when um, I, I believe it was Dr. Olby and I removed a, um, a vascular anomaly from the spine of a boxer. I'd say that was, that was a sea of blood vessels, and that was probably the trickiest that, that I've done since. But certainly, otherwise, you know, um, AA surgeries and tiny, tiny teacup little guys are stressful and, and complicated, but great, you know, in the end, that, you know, great sense of accomplishment at the end of it. And uh, certainly a number of fracture cases have been complex. Um, when there are um, there are fragments, you know, when the anatomy is so different from what it should be because of trauma, or I would say also probably vertebral malformation cases, where we're placing implants in anatomy again that's entirely abnormal. This is one of my favorite questions to ask. Do you listen to a certain type of music in the OR? Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, I vary. We vary it a bit. It depends on who's in there, but. Typically, my favorite is reggaeton or other uh, Latin music or Latin pop kind of music. Yeah, 
I, uh, yeah, <laughs> sometimes we vary it up a bit if there's been too much of that or if there's, you know, a more stressful surgery that might be too high paced and we might do more uh, 80s kind of uh, music. And I vary enormously uh-huh. in my music days, frankly. Um, I like trap music a lot too. So that might be, but usually it's reggaeton if it's possible. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I like that question a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would be an interesting thing to, to survey across what we all listen to, actually, in surgery. You know, it's interesting. Yeah, uh, I yeah hear exactly. 80s music well, because a lot. so many of us can relate back to that. You know, it was when you were, it was when you were growing up and it kind of is, it's easy to listen to. It's not stressful. So there are more, you know, high stress surgeries that you really need to be, you know, not be having a bum, bum, bum kind of beat, then then it's nice to change it up with things like that. But most of the time, I mean, Hemi's, you know, they're so routine that it's a, yeah, reggaeton is the way to go. <laughs> so what has been the most challenging aspect of your career? I would say probably balancing family and work. I'd say that's the most challenging there is no perfect answer. I think, especially being female, there's no perfect answer to work and life balance. Um, having two kids uh, that I wouldn't trade for the world, and having an amazing husband that I love to spend time with—it's um, a—it's a balance. Sometimes, you know, when you're uh, suppose if you have a really late work day and and you come home and the kids are already asleep and the next day there are a lot of cases you need to look at so you leave before they wake up, then it's tough because the kids feel it. And, you know, they're 8 and 10 now, so they understand it a lot better. But particularly when they were little, it was difficult to to not feel guilt about that, to be honest. But, But I think that's why I think many of us, probably go through that and and just try to do the best that we can. And we try to, you know, I try to focus certainly the days that I'm off, I'm here with them and I, and I give them all the attention possible. And, you know, you try to balance it out and hope that you're doing the best possible for that. And I value the fact that I'm able to show them that a woman can successfully have a career and can be, can follow what she loves to do as well, you know, and, and to have her own, her own thing in that sense and not have it only be the man. And frankly, my son moments where, for example, my son, the other day, I, I, I was going to go give a lecture here in Chicago, actually. And I was dressed up for the lecture. I said, mama, where are you going? I'm going to go teach a class. And his eyes lit up. He's like, you're a teacher. I, because, you know, to him, it's a teacher, teacher, not guy kind of teacher. So I said, yes, yeah, I'm going to go teach some veterinarians, you know, about neurology. Oh. Wow, mama, <laughs> you're a teacher and a doctor. That's awesome. <laughs> so moments like that, you know, that just make you like, okay, fine. This is, okay, you, yeah. you know, you take a sigh of, okay, maybe this is going somewhere positive. You know, maybe this in the end of this is a, a positive thing, you know, that they learn that this is, you have your thing that you love too, you know, and love them any less. They value you for all right. your aspects. So <laughs> hopefully nobody ends up on a psychologist couch when you're older. But that's the best I can do. That's the best. What has been uh, the most rewarding aspect of your career? I think the relationships with clients and with patients. Honestly, I, I really value that. And I didn't realize the extent to which I miss, I really missed that until I got to private practice. 
because in academia you have such a filter between you and and the patient and the owner. I mean, you meet them and you're in, you're you're interacting with them, but you're not having the day to day interactions or you know week to week or month to month with our long term clients. And uh, it's it's incredibly valuable seeing those guys come back and seeing the you know the restoration of the family unit in a sense because these guys are so much a part of the family unit as you know and being able to help with that is it it really makes all the long hours or whatever it might be worthwhile frankly i think that and then also i love surgery so being able to perform surgery is just great and fix things fix things yes exactly yes yeah <laughs> yes i like fixing yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> So mental health is such a, a topic widely discussed today, and, and you had mentioned it earlier. How do you unwind and handle the stresses of your position? Yeah, uh, so a couple of ways. You know, my, my kids are a huge a huge part of that, and my husband, and spending time with them, and, and our puppy. We have a puppy now, so she's great comic relief. They make you think, they take you entirely away from your own uh, gears spinning about what happened at mm-hmm. work and things like that if there was a challenging day or a challenging owner. So that helps enormously. Mm-hmm. So, family, hugely. I work out, you know, that helps enormously for me. Um, oh, yes. I do Orange Theory, so I do the, uh, just the, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then um, and then I'm teaching myself to play the guitar, which I hesitate to say because <laughs> I'm no good at it yet. But, <laughs> but uh, I'm having a lot of fun, so I guess that's all that matters. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm hoping. That's all that matters. <laughs> yeah. We'll see. Check back with me in a little bit and see if I've made much progress. <laughs> yeah. But that and music. Music is huge to me. So, you know, it's, it's those kind of things. What kind of a puppy did you get? A Labradoodle. She's a, yeah, I know. It's such a common dog. I'm embarrassed to say, (laughs) but she's amazing. (laughs) She's the best. She's eight months old now and she's insanely energetic, but she's a cuddle bug. She's perfect. She's a perfect blend of run with the kids. But as soon as she's inside, she, all she wants to do is cuddle or, you know, she'll be calm in the house as long as you run her a bit. She's great. She's, yeah, for a puppy, I'd say we really lucked out. Yes. And only one shoe eaten so far. So, you know, or not eaten, oh, but shoes. <laughs> that is a win too. <laughs> only one. <laughs> Surely there'll be more. <laughs> and we just rescued a year and a half old shepherd. And, um, oh, nice. Just seeing the joy in her face. It just, yeah. it, it makes my heart sing. <laughs> yeah, it does. Exactly. Yes, yes, exactly. It makes such a, such a world of a difference. You know, they're such comic yes. relief. Truly they are. They just, they do these ridiculous things, you know, Yes. that it just, it makes all, everybody laugh. Yeah. Yes. So are there any big changes on the horizon for veterinary neurology, neurosurgery that, um, or that you're thinking or researching or anything like that? Right now, I'm not not so much in the research area right now. I I have to say I'm I'm more so in practice itself and then lecturing. Mm -hmm. But right now tying up, I'm really, it's because I'm, I'm leading this dyskinesia task force, this international dyskinesia task force that um, is through ECVN and it's taking a lot of my time, which is good. It's taking good amounts of time, uh, you know, balancing between family, that and work and lecture, lecturing responsibilities, that is enough right now for my plate. 
Um, but if, but you know, once that is tied up, then I, I may try, I may investigate or consider the research side of things a bit as far as clinical research. Uh huh. Can you tell me a little more about that endeavor? So it's basically trying to better define movement disorders in veterinary medicine. In veterinary medicine, we, we don't have things very well defined. I mean, we, we have some things defined as far as breed related disorders, you know, Scotty cramps and dancing dobies and certain things like that. But the, the relationships between these different breed related disorders is unclear. And then the definitions that we're all using sometimes are, are rather unclear. And, and sometimes some of us are defining the same things one way and defining it with another name. And it's, it's, there's not a lot of homogeneity in how we characterize things. And it's difficult to define disease processes and understand their interrelationships when we don't even use the same language, all of us. So basically the goal is to try to start to use a more homogeneous, or at least try to propose a more homogeneous terminology that can be used so that we can all start talking the same language and try to better define these disease processes. And in that sense, facilitate facilitate reports of, on these diseases and facilitate where, where everybody knows what we're talking about and then also facilitate research, frankly. Right, right. That's the end okay. goal. I mean, that's a huge goal, right? So we're not going to accomplish all of that, but at least we're going to try to define terminology, try to define what, or at least try to, again, propose definitions for what is, suppose, myokymia, what is, um, or more mm-hmm. so, suppose, uh, a paroxysmal dyskinesia, what is uh, myotonia, what is myoclonus, what is, what you know, these terms that we that we use and what disease processes potentially could manifest these uh, to try to start to at least get us on the road to understanding these diseases better. Got it. And that's throughout the world. So it's through ECVN, the European College of Veterinary Neurology. And there are a number of, there are a couple of us that formed a task force and together, and there are some, some of us here in the U S and some of us, some of us in Europe that are working together on this. Got it. Okay. And just one more question. Do you have any advice for residents just starting their residency um, and also any advice for those starting their first jobs? For starting their residency, I would say, I would say to, to read as much as you can in that first year. I know that there's, there's a ton to read as far as anatomy and things like that, but make sure to keep reading up on your cases so that then when you arrive at third year, then that just helps to build your knowledge base as much as possible, you know, so that then by the time you get to third year, then you have not only the working knowledge base for day-to-day clinics, but also you've read a lot of the journals that become so intimidating when you're studying for boards. Uh, That would be one set of advice. The other main thing I would say is to listen to what your uh, seniors are talking about with clients. So for example, go in with the third year resident and hear their spiel so that then you can learn, you can pick up quickly so that you can develop your own spiel, right? About seizure. What is the seizures spiel and what is the disc disease blurb that you give to owners, right? And those kind of things help you to hit the ground running. And then for starting a career, 
there are a lot of different possibilities. <laughs> I would say, I would say the main thing, frankly, is to uh, go somewhere where there is somebody that's willing to mentor you through tough surgeries. I would say that's one of the main things because that can be one of the main intimidating aspects of going out into private practice uh, or into practice by your, you know, into practice in general when you're first beginning. Your, your work as a veterinary neurologist and neurosurgeon are those tough AA cases that are one kilo in weight or the fractures that come in, you know, those kind of things that if you have somebody that can help you and that is willing to, uh, to do that, you know, in a, in a kind way and in a constructive way, I think that means the world in that first year. Okay. Well, thank you. I don't want to take any more of your time, but this has been wonderful. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much, Laura. I appreciate it. Sure. Thank you. And I'll see you at ACVIM. I'll see you there. <laughs> Sounds good. Okay. okay. Bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this podcast. I hope that it provided some useful information for you. If I can help you in any way as you are considering a career move, please let me know. I work with veterinary hospitals and academic institutions throughout North America, and I would love to learn more about your career path.